these are the transitions where you really start to understand like who are your supporters and who aren't your supporters gives you point in time to be really reflective on what you're good at, what you want to do, what's important to you and create your own confidence that's not tied to something like your business card or the organization you're attached to, which I think is really important because that's where it gets really tricky. That's Beth Barrera, a noted venture capitalist. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic and is changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. Beth Ferreira isn't your typical venture capitalist. After starting her ascent in the industry at the legendary New York VC firm Flatiron Partners, she then left the industry to run operations at Etsy and then serve as COO at Fab.com, a red-hot startup that raised over $300 million and then crashed to the ground in spectacular fashion. At that point, Beth returned to the investing side of the business, launching a $50 million fund with WME, the Hollywood Talent Agency. More recently, she became a partner at Firstmark, where she's invested in buzzworthy startups like Glossier, JustWorks, Masterclass, and Daily Harvest. I wanted to have Beth on the show, not just because she's a top investor who can take us behind the scenes of the VC industry, but also because she has proven that you can build your own path, one forged by tenacity and hard work, and you can gain valuable perspective in the process. That perspective will not only make you a better investor, but as I've seen over the last 20 years that I have known her, it can make you a better person. If you're someone who has faced tough decisions in the roller coaster of building a career, then you'll appreciate her journey. And then stick around for the faux moment of the show when I'll be talking to another venture capitalist, this time in South America. I just got back from Lima, and while I was there, I asked one of the founders of Peru's first venture capital fund what it's going to take to succeed. It's going to be a great show, so you will not want to miss out. And to make sure you never miss out on all things FOMO Sapiens, you can text FOMO to 66866 or visit patrickmcginnis.com to subscribe to my newsletter, What Did I Miss? All right, let's get on with the show. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, Beth Ferreira. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Beth, I like to start the show the same way every time, asking you this question. Everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes, so what turns you into a FOMO sapiens? I'd say anything that has to do with my kids, whether I have to pick between the activity one is doing versus the other, or I'm traveling and they're doing something here, or just something happens that I'm just not around, that gives me a lot of FOMO. So basically what you're telling us is you have one who's your favorite but you're, you struggle with that. <laughs> There's always, you have to pick one, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. That's for another show. So Beth, I wanted to have you on the show today because you are somebody who's had a diverse career. You're a venture capitalist. You've launched a fund. You're now working at a large New York fund, First Mark Capital. Um, you have been on the entrepreneur side, working at a company called fab.com. You worked at Etsy. So you've been around tech and investing for a long time. And you've seen the ups and the downs of the cycle, which is super interesting uh, to anybody who is interested in venture capital. I want to start with a fundamental question, which is when you're looking at businesses and you're deciding whether or not to invest, what drives your decision? 
So there are a lot of things that drive the decision. So market, size, space, how they're solving the problem, um, whether it is attract or going after a broken market, white space, whatever it is. But really what drives the actual investment decision is the people behind it. And so ultimately, particularly if you're investing in the early stages, is that person really understand the problem, really motivated to create something out of nothing? Because ultimately in those first two to five years, you're constantly breaking things and reinventing and trying to figure out what's happening. And it's not for everyone. And you're sort of trying to make the decision around, is this the person who's going to break down the walls and be able to attract capital, attract talent, and ultimately keep that vision of the business so that it can actually grow into a multi-billion dollar business. Let's talk about um, an investment decision you made that just didn't go well and what you learned from it. This is actually a great question around uh, people. And so I backed someone who was super analytical, thinking about thinking about how do you use data in order to better target customers in the beauty space. I had an amazing team, had all these data scientists, had really early amazing traction. And he, and we talk about the idea around FOMO and and momentum about a business. I came in early before many of these other investors came in and at the Series A. And they, you know, so you have this momentum around okay, we made this great decision. He's a great founder. Everything is working. All these big funds are coming in. This is amazing. And what ended up happening was he really never really understood his end consumer. And so you have a bunch of data nerds trying to figure out how to package a product for a millennial woman. And somehow that over time just didn't scale. So he had a lot of really early traction in the early days. And I think all of us, including myself, believed that this was a person who was going to be able to take those few data points in the early days and be able to figure out how to scale it. And it just never happened. And so this company, did it just fail or did you make some changes? What happened? It just, you know, it's interesting. It was uh, out of my out of my last fund and we just got a notice saying they were shutting down the company and returning the capital to, to investors. <laughs> and so, you know and, what? Entrepreneurs call people before you send the email, right? I mean, uh, would you ever invest in somebody again if they just don't even tell you and you just get an email? I mean, one no. Day? I mean, Come I on. think it would be really difficult for for this guy to raise capital again because yeah. he also had a good number of well known venture capitalists in there who, you know, we talk, we know who you know who's doing what. Um, it's also just sort of respect you're also we're in business with you and the company's success is our success yeah. um and you know you want to make sure that you have that relationship that even when things go wrong that everyone feels comfortable having those conversations because we i don't know what could have been the you know i wasn't on the board of this company and and uh you know i don't know what happened in the boardroom but ultimately that's a pretty extreme situation, particularly today where capital is pretty prevalent and he could probably sort of course correct and raise capital again. And so you think, for example, in that in that story, if the one of the co-founders had been a millennial woman who was the target customer, understood the target customer better, things would have gone differently. Yeah. I mean, look, there could have been all kinds of things that happened. It might have been more difficult for them to raise cap that that woman to raise capital. Um, you know, I think 
all of us got enamored by the data approach, like, you know, this like the art of, of marketing and brand versus the the science behind, you know, actually understanding like what behavior, what people are actually doing, what you versus what you think they're doing. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I think, you know, maybe that company would have never gotten off the ground. Gotcha. Okay. Now I want to flip it around. We'll give you a chance to also tell us something that went well. So tell us about, and name names this time, please. A company you've invested in that you you feel like, you know, the decision was the right one. And obviously the, the, there was a, there was a happy outcome there. You know, I'll also use another example from, from WME. We were early in a company called Glossier. Glossier is a beauty company targeting millennial women, um, you know, all around being, being you and your classic, you know, authentic you. And, you know, in the early days, the thesis was around, she really, there's a founder, Emily Weiss, who's amazing. Right. She, and, and her Instagram, by the way, is basically a FOMO factory. Yeah. Check it out. Exactly. Uh, she, she's amazing. She really understood who her target customer was. She really understood who this girl was. She, you know, embodied that person and was able to really create products and an experience to make this person feel really great. And, you know, ultimately before they even launched any products, it was an, the, the thesis was around, even if they never get to the products, no one understands this consumer like she does. One of the big beauty brands is going to feel like that's an asset. So whatever happens, that feels like there's something really there. And ultimately, over time, they were able to get that engine around uh, creating products and launching products and supporting those products over and over again. And, you know, it wasn't always up and to the right. I mean, there was, you know, a few moments where, you know, there were some hiccups in the road or like products didn't launch when they were supposed to. And, um, you know, also gave us an opportunity to double down so early. And so we did that as well. And, you know, obviously they've done incredibly well and, and I don't want to say she built a cult, but these women are so rabid. They'll wait for, you know, 45 minutes to get into the store and are, you know, recommending these products to everyone they know. It's interesting the two examples you just gave kind of go really well together as bookends because you have one example where you had a smart approach in the same market, beauty, smart approach, data-driven, founder did not drive with the consumer. Like if your consumer were to meet the founder, they'd be like, why are you building a business around me? And then you have another business where the founder is so perfect for the brand story. Like she walks in the room, she is the company and obviously, you know, it's done really well. So it's a good, it's a good takeaway for anybody who's looking, when you invest in a company, if your founder has nothing to do with the market you're going after, um, that's a note of caution because it may be that, uh, that when times are going to get tough, there's no, there's, as you said, it's not always up and to the right. When times get tough and you're looking for solutions, you may just not have the toolkit you need to do that. And so, you know, so that's a that's a very interesting uh, takeaway. I want to turn now um, to um, what we've been seeing in the market these days, which is that you see these very smart people making very crazy looks like, at least in retrospect, decisions in, with their money and investing in, in companies. And I want to I want to note, for example, there's WeWork, which has been in the press a lot. Uh, was worth forty seven billion dollars one day and less than ten billion the next. Probably not even worth that at this point. Um, you know, it's all paper valuations. You have Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, and you had obviously a lot of people who were kind of out of their depths there, not as sophisticated as SoftBank. You have cryptocurrency and, and all these booms. You have all of these areas of investing where people who may not be, uh, you know, 
the savviest investors are making mistakes, but then you have people who are very savvy, who are putting money into things that blow up. And what I want to ask you is like, why, why, why does this happen? Why is it that these venture capitalists who have made some major investment decisions that were successful, why do they do silly things like the WeWorks of the world? What's going on there? So this is a pretty crazy job where you're trying to figure out how do you invest in people and ideas that are going to have outsized returns. And ultimately, you're taking on a fair amount of risk. There's so many things and so many so many things that you're never going to know and so many unknowns. And so there's some sort of suspension of belief that this is going to be a huge, huge company. And so when you take those, you know, some of those companies that you just mentioned, you have in each case a charismatic founder who is selling a really big story with some success under their belt, something that they've done that says, okay, we're starting to be in that path. Now, in the case of Theranos, some of those things were exaggerated and, you know, are all really documented. You know, in the case of we work. It's well. If we raise so much capital, we're going to figure this out on the way, right? Yeah. And you know, at some point, the music stopped, and people started to look at the business with a different lens. When in the early stages, it's like, oh, it's growing, and you're going to invest in growth, and we'll figure out the unit economics later. When you have to figure out the unit economics, if you're not there, so unit economics meaning. Does the business work? Does it make money? Is there a path for it to make money? And, you know, we work on the path to going public. There was more scrutiny around that. And so that's when sort of the wheels fell off the bus and people started to think about, well, wait a minute, what is this business? You and I met a long time ago, actually 20 years ago, roughly, both working in venture capital. And we were, we met at a time when there was a massive boom, basically. People were throwing money into companies at a pace that it was kind of ridiculous and doing very little diligence. And then eventually there was a crash in 2001. The NASDAQ fell from 5,000 to around 1,300 and the whole market corrected. And I don't know about you, but it really changed me. I, I sort of like became much more skeptical from that point on. A lot of the people who are investing these days were not around at that time. They've never seen anything except for a boom. As you make decisions, how much of your thinking is driven by, oh my God, we could have another crash and I don't want to have this company in my portfolio if that happens? Yeah. And, and a lot of people investing now haven't even been through the crash of 2007 either. Oh so we've yeah, had, right. you know, we had two of them. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really hard to not be carrying that baggage and thinking about these companies. I mean, it's a tricky place because as a venture capitalist, you have to be glass half full and, you know, be ultimately an optimist. But you want to be an optimist with that caveat of like, we want to make sure that these businesses are long-term sustainable businesses. And there are moments where you invest in that growth and you get comfortable with how the growth is going and versus the dollars coming in. And then there's moments where you're like, maybe we should be thinking about profitability. And those are sometimes hard conversations with founders who haven't been through those those um, bumps in the road, and then also other co-investors or board members who haven't been through that. And it's a delicate dance. And, you know, right now we've been talking about sort of when the next correction is going to be for the last four years. And, you know, at some point there'll be some sort of correction. Hopefully it's not a crash, but there'll be that moment where capital won't be as easy to get. Before uh, you went to WME and, and now your first mark, you worked at one of the hottest startups in New York City. It's called Fab.com. 
It was in the houseware space. It raised $330 million from lots of smart people. You were the COO. You had how many people reporting to you? 600. Oh my goodness. And it went from hero to zero. The company shut down. And then you had to get up the next day and figure out what to do with your life and your career. So how do you do that? When you go from high-flying, I mean, you were in all the newspapers and you were in magazines. I remember reading about you. I remember when you took the job. I remember watching you negotiate your equity package. And I was so excited for you. I didn't really know what the company did. But then, I mean, I was like, what is this thing? But then I saw where it went. I went visit your office. It was awesome. And then I remember thinking, like, what is she going to do? So how do, you, how, do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I'd say um, the toughest part about that was I had just spent the last two and a half years looking all of those people in the eye and say, hey, come join, you know, come join me on this ride. Let's link arms and we're going to build something really great together. And, you know, we we did. There was a lot of great things that we built and the business, particularly in the U.S., was humming. And um, and when that all came to an end, I think that was the hardest thing for me because I felt like I let down all of those people, all 600 of my org that believed in me, I felt, I, you know, and I made them that promise that we were going to do this. And, and it was hard for me to think about all of the micro decisions and some of the macro decisions that ended up with the culmination of the business being sold for $15 million. So this was, you know, to give a time frame, this all happened within three years. So raised the $330 million, you know, had a billion-dollar valuation, one of the first, you know, unicorns in the consumer space, and then, and then uh, you know, crashed and burned. So um, it was a long time. It took me almost a year to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I started to do some consulting to sort of structure my weeks a little bit, um, but give me enough time to think about what I wanted to do. I had a, you know, I just, that was my second startup, you know, and also second startup that grew pretty fast. So Etsy, which fortunately had a much better outcome, was the first, but as the 12th employee there. So I had sort of that emotional roller coaster of building that business as well. So I was on the second. And so it was a question around, did I have another one of those in me? Could I go in early and scale another business? Or was there something else? And I, you know, as you mentioned, I'd worked in venture capital. Early in my career, there were some firms that were sort of like, oh, hey, like, let's, you know, come talk to us for, you know, varying different roles, whether it was in their companies or, you know, as a venture partner or a partner. And, and I started to have those conversations. And ultimately, when I started to talk to WME, it seemed like almost the perfect hybrid. I was starting something from scratch, but then also sort of re-entering the venture world and you know, was able to build the team, build the entire investment thesis, how we operated. And it did, you know, interestingly, looking back, it felt very operational, um, but on the flip side, made that transition. But it was really hard. I mean, there was a lot of times where I think these are the transitions where you really start to understand like who are your supporters and who aren't your supporters gives you point in time to be really reflective on what you're good at, what you want to do, what's important to you and create your own confidence. That's not tied to something like your business card or the organization you're attached to. 
which I think is really important because that's where it gets really tricky. You never know what's going to happen for the company you're working for. Fab.com was a huge hit and then it wasn't. And you show up, you're, you're working at WeWork. One week you're a hero. The next minute, you know, you send out your, your, your resume and people are like, oh my goodness, you work at WeWork. You must be inept. Well, no, it's not that you're inept, but something changed. And so you are beholden to a lot of forces that you can't control. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. One thing that was really interesting about your time at Fab, and I remember reading these articles about you, the fact that you're one of the first women COOs, you were COO there, um, which at the time was a big deal. And it's kind of looking back, I'm like, wow, geez, I'm like, <laughs> is that shocking to me that that was, that was a talking point that the world has come a long way, in the tech and the venture worlds over the last five, 10 years as a, one of the first women COOs and obviously one of the first women venture capitalists, you have an inside view on, on how diversity is changing tech, but is it, you know, is it changing that much? Like what, what is really happening on the ground in terms of, of this important conversation? You know, look, the numbers are not changing that dramatically. We'll just put that out there. But what I will say is that there is the conversation. People are actually talking about it. And I think it's not, that change is not going to come from one place. It's going to come from a much more holistic um, approach and belief that just not just women, but just general diversity is important. Um, and we're starting to see that, you know, I, um, it's been helpful for me to get into deals or see founders because they're like, look, everyone I'm talking to looks exactly the same. And it's not just women asking for other women. It's men realizing that, wait, I don't want to be a serious C company and have not a single, and have the entire board look exactly the same or my entire executive team look exactly the same or come from the same schools. So you'll start to see, you know, whether it's these companies or firms and, you know, I pick on like, oh, like they all played lacrosse together at Dartmouth type of firms. Like those actually exist and you understand why because they all have trust. They all believe in each other and it just sort of happened organically to make any sort of change. It's a little bit more difficult and concerted. And ultimately, in many of these businesses, it's all about building trust. But we'll see. I mean, I don't think that there'll be real change until both from in in my world, in the venture capital world, until both the founders are demanding that there's diversity, that they'll look for 
you know, people who are going to bring something different to the table. And it also is not just from the individual standpoint, but also from what the firms are actually being able to bring to the table from a value add perspective. And then the LPs who are like, well, wait a minute. Right. The investors in the funds themselves. The, yeah. The investors in the funds. Wait a minute. Like, how are you thinking about growing the firm? What are the types of characteristics of the people you're going to bring in? And that is a much more broad conversation. Is it generational? Is it that some people are just going to have to retire to make space because they just don't quite see it the way that others do? I don't know. I mean, I used to think it was generational, but then our generation is like this. And you're like, how I grew up here. These are the guys I went to school with and worked with. Like, how is this happening in our generation? This should have been already fixed. So we'll see. So Beth, uh, you are one of the busiest people I know. You have two school-age kids. You have an amazing husband who is also busy. Uh, You are constantly flying around doing cool things. Uh, Web Summit this week, San Francisco the next week. Uh, You're investing in lots of companies. You're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, I just want to know, you know, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. So like, what's your secret? What's your, what's your life to advice for other people that want to do a lot and make it happen? It's a struggle. And I spend a lot of time thinking about my time. And so, especially in the type of job I have where, you know, when I was an operator, there was like one goal and everything sort of laddered up to that goal. Now, you need to have some serendipity in your calendar because you never know when you're going to find that founder or the diamond in the rough. And so you have to create – that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and so what I do is one on the on the family front, just very organized. So, you know, lunches are packed on the weekends and, you know – my kids, you know, from an early age were like dressing themselves and getting themselves ready to school and just like this is just the way the world is going to work. But from the standpoint of like here's your week and how you spend your time, like I literally go through my calendar every four to six weeks and figure out like what am I doing? How much time did I spend looking at new companies? How much time did I spend with my portfolio? Um, how much time did I spend whether speaking at a conference or doing whatever and readjusting and making sure that I'm like, okay, if I think I'm meeting with too many founders, maybe I should be do, like my screen should be at a different level or I just don't have the capacity to actually get back and work with them the same way as I would want. And then the last piece I would, what I do is I try to create periods where I'm actually just thinking. And so cause my job is- Do you put it on the calendar? Do you schedule it? I schedule it on the calendar because if I don't, the whole day will get filled. And so it could be early in the morning. I try to mix it up because I'm not really quite sure when's the right time for me or the best time for me. But I'll mix it up. And I usually do two to three hour blocks. And they usually get little dents in them. And like I'll take a meeting or something in those. But if I don't protect them and I don't protect them two months out, then they'll just disappear. And as you do all of these things, what are you missing out on? So many things, <laughs> so many things. I mean, you know, it's funny sometimes when, you know, I have something on the calendar and I get another invite, it's almost a relief. Like, oh, sorry, I can't, I've already committed to something. Like, mm. you know, just kind of take that off the off your plate. But there's always that piece of like, I, even though I know I can't be in three places at once, there's always that piece of like, am I, am I actually making the right decision on which one I'm doing? And are you? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you have to believe that the universe is going to take care of itself and you're going to make 
you're always going to make the right decision. Yeah. I think that the critical thing is, is just to do something and then move on because, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking all of your decisions when it comes to how you spend your time. I mean, I think what you're doing is you, you look at it kind of every four to six weeks and you assess and you, and you right size and correct, which seems like a really good way to do it. But at the end of the day, all you can do is push forward. And if you spend all your time equivocating, you're not going to get anywhere. Exactly. Beth, for people who are interested in learning more about you, maybe about First Mark, where can they find out more about you? Where are the best places? Twitter. So okay. What's your handle? Beth Ferreira. B-E-T-H-F-E-R-R-E-I-R-A. And what do you, I, I, so I follow you on Twitter. I think you have some really good stuff on there. Do you think Twitter is a positive, neutral, or negative force in the universe? I think generally positive. So, you know, it's interesting – it's it's a pretty big force in my industry. So a lot of, you know, a lot of venture capitals, a lot of entrepreneurs are on there um, sharing information, sharing thoughts, debating. And, you know, in a world where, you know, you don't really work in big teams, it's it's kind of great to have that sort of public. And the nice thing is, like, you can see four venture capitalists debating something. Every entrepreneur out there can see how they're thinking about it, which is pretty great. I mean, you see this in blogs too, but, you know, in real time, they can follow it. But then also from the standpoint of utility, like you just find information quicker on Twitter versus, you know, other other outlets. So, you know, we had a fire in my building and we couldn't get a hold of the fire department. And, you know, we went on Twitter and learned what was happening. So, wow. you know, it's 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 a real thing. And from the standpoint of getting information disseminated in real time. I don't think there's anything like it. Bring endorsement for Twitter. We'll be checking you out there. Um, thanks a lot for coming by today and uh, best of luck. Thanks so much for having me. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. And now it's time for the phone moment of the show. And I'm coming to you live from Lima, Peru, where I'm sitting with Guillermo Miro Quesada, who is the co-founder and partner of the Sakantai Exponential Fund, which is the first venture capital fund in Peru. And I will tell you, full disclosure, that I'm actually a part of the investment committee of this fund. And I wanted to talk with Guillermo today because we spent this whole show talking about venture capital in the United States. I wanted to see what's going on in another market with somebody who's actually doing the work day to day. So welcome to the show, Guillermo. Hello, Patrick. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So let's start. You started this fund this year. Why now for venture capital in Peru? For a bunch of different reasons. We see at a macro level, there's a fair amount of capital flowing into the region to fund new and innovative companies. We have a, a approximately 2 billion flowing into Latin America. Of that, almost zero is coming to Peru right now. So we, we see the need to actually start a company here that will get some of that money funding local entrepreneurs with great ideas solving fundamental problems. 
Why do you think is Peru, which is a large country, 30 million people, why is it that none of the money has come here yet? The money f flowing into the region first went into the larger markets like Brazil and Mexico, and uh, we've seen good experiences there. And now it's starting to go into Colombia, Chile, Peru. And one of the things that have, has determined the order in which money has gone into the region has also been the involvement of the local governments. So you have Mexico, you have um, Chile, you have Colombia, uh, with a fair amount of government involvement probably for the last decade with um, activities and, and agencies like Startup Chile and similar initiatives in, in Mexico and Colombia. And Peru got a, a little bit late into the game, but we're catching up really quickly. And what we're seeing is really innovative companies, uh, a lot of catching up and a lot of learning from our neighboring countries. Um, and basically a fair amount of companies trying to solve regional problems starting from Peru. What are the kind of the problems that the companies you're seeing are trying to solve? Most of the problems that we're, that we're seeing entrepreneurs solving are those of access. So we see, we see them trying to solve problems related to access to finance. We see them uh, trying to solve problems related to access to education. So in the edtech and fintech space, we see a lot of activity. And also because of the moment, because of the, of the wave of digital transformation, we see also um, more transversal companies solving very specific problems in, in various industries. It's a, it's a broad movement with a lot of opportunities. What do you see as the principal challenges to the funds and the entrepreneurs operating here? The first one is um, capital, um, getting the, the, the right size funds here. And because there haven't been venture capital firms before, just uh, getting investors comfortable with the risk and profile of the asset class is, uh, takes a lot of work, but we're, it's, it's part of what we're doing. The second one, and it's also critical, is experience. In a new sector, you don't have a lot of practitioners in the venture capital space in Peru, and that has uh, made us seek help from, from, from abroad and try to get some Peruvian expats in the space involved in our project and in our fund, also uh, reach out to experts and, and uh, for example, the Caprio network. So we, we need to fill in the, the gaps in terms of experience. We need the funding. And uh, finally, we, need some, we still need some local regulations perfected to make venture capital investing easier. In the, in the country and in the region. You mentioned the Caprio Network. That's a, a network of sort of a fund of funds, investment funds that has a, an impact lens. It, make, it supports funds that, that are doing impact investing, which we talked about a couple shows ago with Andrew Cooper of LeapFrog. So when you think about the role of venture capital in Peru and the impact it can have, how do you, how do you as a fund position yourself to take advantage of that opportunity? We think it, it goes hand in hand. Making good investments in emerging markets actually uh, needs both a, a, a finance and profit approach and an impact approach. We believe that in the intersection of both uh, is where most of the, of the long-term opportunities lie. When we think about it, we think uh, about investments that are resilient, that are actually solving fundamental problems with a creative approach and the use of technology. And we think that's where you have a lot of impact and a lot of returns and the potential to actually have exponential outcomes. Guillermo, if people want to find out more about your work in Sakantai Exponential Fund, where can they find out more? You can go to our website at sxf.pe. All right. Guillermo Medecruzada, muchas gracias y buena suerte. Gracias a ti, Patrick. Mucha suerte. FOMO. Big news. You can now pre-order my upcoming book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO Sapiens. While you're there, make sure to download my free gift for you, the FOMO Sapiens Handbook, which is an exclusive guide to spotting and managing FOMO and even turning it into a force for good. 
Just remember, you can find links to all things FOMO Sapiens in the show notes. And if you really don't want to miss out, subscribe to my official newsletter, What Did I Miss? by texting FOMO to 66866 or signing up at patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO quiz to find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. FOMO.